0: Science. Hello and welcome to Probably Science. I'm Andy Wood.
1: I'm Matt Kirshen. Andy, you? you're sitting up straight. You're smiling. I am. I got my surgery. Look at you.
0: A little slice in my back, and uh, I'm 12 days out and pretty, pretty far along in the recovery. Yeah, it was um, harder than I thought. My first ever surgery. Surgery always kind of hurts. Lesson learned. But no, it went well. Thank you, everybody, for the well wishes. And um, uh, thank you, Jake Swenson, who wrote in with some more information about anesthesia, because I think I was wondering about eating and drinking times before surgery, which I think I messed up because I, I wasn't supposed to eat after midnight, but I didn't realize I could... I think I could have drank water in the morning or maybe I stopped drinking water too early the night before because I was so dehydrated when I came to from the surgery. And that was almost the worst thing about that day because they kept me in the hospital extra time until I could pee. Because they were convinced that I had pee that I couldn't get out because general anesthesia messes with your ability to empty your bladder for some reason, so I kept like I had to give them a hundred milligrams, hundred milliliters of pee before I could leave, and I couldn't do it. And I'm like, I'm dehydrated. Give me some water or give me an IV drip. Like, and they're like, No, you got to pee. I'm like, No, I, I literally can't. And they wouldn't believe me. They finally did an uh, ultrasound on my bladder, and they're like, Oh yeah, your bladder's empty. I'm like, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh,
1: but Jake writes in and says. Uh, Hey guys, I'm a certified registered nurse anesthetist in Virginia. I wanted to write in to clarify something I heard listening to episode 349. At the beginning of the episode when discussing Andy's back surgery, there are a few things said regarding the guidelines for eating and drinking before surgery, most specifically timeframes and consequences. Not eating or drinking, uh, remaining NPO as they call it, is important for anesthesia as patients with full or partially full stomachs can aspirate or vomit the contents of their stomach into their lungs. Sorry, anyone who's listening to this episode with dinner. Um, aspiration has potentially severe consequences. In particular, the most dangerous times of anesthesia, anesthesia for aspiration are the beginning, which is called induction, and at the end, emergence and extubation. It was mentioned that no one should eat or drink prior... No, sorry, 24 hours prior to surgery Which is in- inaccurate
0: Yeah, I don't know why I said that most,
1: f- most first surgeries take place around 7.30 in the morning That was mine, yeah uh, All of my patients are instructed not to eat after midnight Which puts them around 8 hours from eating Prior to the induction of anesthesia Patients are permitted clear liquids like water Clear juices and black coffee 2-4 to four hours prior to surgery if needed I really wish I'd done that Yeah uh, That being said, emergencies occur and patients with full stomachs require surgery i mean that makes sense obviously yeah Uh, traffic accidents and the like not all surgeries are elective great caution is taken for those patients and anesthesia providers train extensively for this eventuality and perform under this reality often i know you strive for accuracy we sure do jake and i wanted to provide information that was useful for both you and us the listeners and you can link to this website for the anesthesia mpo guidelines we'll put that in the show notes uh, and then Jake says some nice things. Thanks, Jake. That's yeah, very cool. Thanks. That's... Appreciate it.
0: And thank you to the doctors who cut me up and uh, took out the bad stuff. It's uh, when, I, when I came to, I could already feel like there was strength in my left leg again. They say taken out the part that was pushing against that nerve. It's crazy. That, Yeah, that it was that immediate. It's just like a mechanical thing. Yeah, there was just a thing that was pushing against. It's It's like if you had a kink in a hose or something. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of pain afterwards because of the actual having your body cut up, which that again surprised me but uh yeah two weeks out it's um i haven't taken a pain pill in at least three days now i think so wow not nice. even recreationally i mean sure for fun why not <laughs> yeah went sailing yesterday i don't know if that was the best idea but i didn't bend over so as long as i don't bend lift or twist for three months i'm good
1: wow i never had you down as a straight back sailor
0: <laughs> <laughs> you seen straight back sailor hotel right next month <laughs> it's- So we have a guest this week. We have a very special guest.
1: Yeah, we're we're skyping in. That's why we're doing a bit of a preamble beforehand, just because we only had a... a He's in the middle of a book tour calling into a lot of people, so we only had a a limited amount of time with Randall Munro, who I'm guessing almost all of you are familiar with at least some of his work. He's the creator of the XKCD comic books, which uh, for the few of you who maybe don't know what we're talking about, you almost certainly would have seen sort of stick figure cartoons being passed around that always have some... Well, not they're not always uh, scientific. Some of them are uh, social or whatever, but mm-hmm. they 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 all have interesting takes. They all have great, interesting points of view. And, yeah,
0: and he's also written a bunch of books. You might have read Thing Explainer, which is a book that explains complicated concepts using only the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English language, which is such a great concept.
1: And, uh, and What If, which is the answer to a whole bunch of questions that readers sent in about, you know, what if various hypothetical situations occurred. Right, right. And, uh, and he has a new book, which is called How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems. And, and he will also be doing a live book tour, bouncing around uh, North, I think just North America, as far as I'm aware so far. But... Yeah, if you're hearing
0: this episode, it means the book is now on sale. It goes on sale today, September 3rd, as we're recording.
1: His dates are on the website, but they start from tuesday september 3rd and run to september 19th and he bounces around from cambridge massachusetts where he's based through uh, washington dc new york ann arbor michigan your hometown there andy Portland, oregon your adopted hometown Mm -hmm. seattle washington san francisco santa cruz los angeles where we live salt lake city kansas city cincinnati louisville and raleigh and uh he's uh talking quite quite often in conversation with people that we like a lot as well Like a past friend of the show, Adam Savage, who's hosting the San Francisco event. And then people like Ken Jennings, Cory Doctorow, and Katie Mack. All good folks.
0: In the new book, he also talks to past guest Chris Hadfield in a very fun chapter about how to do an emergency crash landing.
1: Without further... Should we we just get into it? Yeah. Should we cut to... This is Randall Munro. Hello. Hey, Randall. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I'm Matt. And, and I'm Andy. Hey, it's nice to meet you. And you. So uh, we, we normally are those very different... F- we, we often start by asking our guests what their background in science is. Yours is relatively well documented. But oh, do you ever regret leaving physics behind to go into full-time writing and drawing? You know, not really. <laughs> um...
2: uh uh when i was doing physics i really liked it and it was i i had thought for a while i didn't want to do science at all because i had done a bunch of different you know i, I went through a couple of years in science where it just not, none of it seemed interesting to me and it all seemed really hard um and then i hit on physics and was like oh here's the science i like okay um And then I've and I've broadened out a little since then, you know, uh, uh, other sciences have some pretty cool stuff in them, too. Um, But for me, my problem was I I was finishing uh, uh, my undergraduate degree and like a lot of people who weren't sure what they were going to do, I was like, okay, should I just keep being in school? You know, should I go to grad school? Uh, It sort of seemed like a path of least resistance. And um, and and my advisor told me, uh, if you're going to do grad school, you really need to you're going to need to pick something to focus on you know the, the like you you do physics you know you're you're good at it you know whatever but it's but but you're all over the map and what you're interested in and you need to drill down to need to, you need to pick one thing and drill down he used that phrase uh and i remember he then used the phrase listen you can't have all the candy in the candy store right. um and But for me, it, like, it was interesting, but I never felt like, you know, there were one or two things that were really cool, but, like, I, I didn't feel like there was an area of physics where I just wanted to do just that, you know? Um, I like finding a cool thing, working on it a little bit, and then moving on. And and I think that was just sort of in, a little incompatible with uh, uh, following in an academic
1: physics, you know, uh, well, doing a degree and doing research. Well, this new book, How To, is, is kind of... Uh, the absolute sort of platonic ideal of that you are you are having all the candy in the candy store with each of the topics you cover because you you'll sort of pick something like how to make an emergency landing or how to send a message from space or uh how to ski and then attack it from almost every scientific angle or every angle from the most basic like how to dig a hole from just shovel and how long that'll take to absurdity yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's totally um, it's it is exactly like eating handfuls of candy. It's like all the fun parts of physics and uh, and uh, science, but I get to just take those fun parts and assemble them together and uh, and and present those to people. Um, and a lot of the time, I do have to do a whole bunch of work in the background. Um, you know i'll come up with an idea but then to figure out if it works or not i have to do like um you know harder physics problem than than what i was doing for my degree or you know do some you know ridiculous amount of research or just write a complicated spreadsheet or something um and then and then what's worst is when i have an idea and i do all that stuff and the answer is oh no that thing that cool thing you thought might have happened won't you know doesn't happen
1: Right. right. Uh, can, can you it, what what example of that can you think of a well, specific one where you spent a while really drilling down and then went like ah it's not getting in.
2: Yeah, um you know there was one chapter that early on I thought was going to be a great chapter uh would be a great chapter for the book which is how to dry out your phone. Uh-huh. Because like the moment of panic when you drop a phone in, or an electronic device of any kind in the water where you think what should I do and is there something I should do right away? Will it help? Um and so the and the one thing most people you know have heard about is that you can put it in a bag of rice overnight, um, you know, or put it in a, a a whole bunch of dry rice, and the rice will suck the moisture out of the phone. And from a physics point of view, it is kind of interesting looking at why the why rice works like that and how well whether it works or not you know and it it does work but it doesn't really pull the moisture out of the phone it just helps provide a dry environment where the moisture can naturally evaporate okay but you're better off trying to get the water to evaporate more in other ways um and i did a whole bunch of research on like here's how to model the rice thing here's how that works but it's limited in how well it can work there are some other tips online for how to do it um, and then I, and then I started, go, started going into the absurd one, uh, you know, uh, more Take, and more absurd ideas. Like, like taking it into space, for example,
1: the so there was a vacuum. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly. Um, but the problem that I ran into was when I was working on this chapter, uh, someone – I was in a living room with someone, and they went and they dropped their phone in the sink. Uh, and I jumped up and I was like, aha, I've been re- I've been researching this and I have a book chapter on this. I can, uh, I am, I am, this is like the one time it's like a, the, the superpower where like, I have yeah. this one useless <laughs> piece of knowledge. The cartoon is like, to okay, the great. rescue. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, okay, great. What do I do? And I was like, well, the rice thing sort of uh, doesn't really work. And, and then I realized like, I haven't really figured out what the best way to do this is. <laughs> um you know, I'm like, I got a bunch of absurd answers and then some, cl- but there were, there are like some people online who have claims about, you know, here's the best way to clean a phone, but there are people who like have a phone cleaning business or something. So I, and I don't know if they're, uh, you know, just saying that their way of doing it is better. And I didn't, and like, I had some answers on the mund- I had the mundane answers covered. You know, I talked about the rice thing and how that works. And then I had some absurd suggestions, but in between there's the very practical, real answer that you don't know and you want to know. Right. And I feel like if you've got a question where someone wants that, where they really do want to know how to draw out their phone and they don't know how to find out, it's kind of hard to use that as an educational, you know, fun moment to explore weird ideas because nobody who has just dropped their phone in the water is interested in hearing your cool idea.
1: Yeah, I, I, I... I guess that you is... Know. I hadn't thought so much about how that really is the structure of... E- we should probably talk a little bit more about the the structure of this book, but you've taken, I don't know how many, uh, a but a bunch of very commonplace problems, from like how to power your home, to slightly silly ones like how to power your home on Mars. Uh, and each each chapter does kind of have that structure, where the first thing is the sort of more obvious one, but you really explain how it works and the the mechanics of it. And then you go... M- vaguely practical but surprising and then absurd and all of them kind of scientifically based
2: yeah yeah and i get to look at like like because sometimes the easiest you know there's the obvious way to solve a problem and then there are some weirder ways to solve the problems and and it's fun to just kind of go through them in turn and and i'll sort of do this without really knowing what's going to turn out to be the best one um you know and sometimes it seems pretty obvious but sometimes it can surprise you, you know, um, and, and like, like my favorite example is when they were landing the Curiosity rover on Mars, they had a problem uh, because the rover was much heavier than all the previous rovers they'd sent. And so the old approaches that they had used, which were um, things like lowering a uh, – uh, like lowering it on parachutes and using airbags to make it – cushion the landing, those wouldn't work. The rover was too heavy and the air was too thin. And they couldn't use rockets either to make it hover uh, because they would kick up dust. And so what they ended up uh, coming up with was this idea of a sky crane, which was a rocket-powered vehicle that would hover way up above so it wouldn't kick out dust that would then lower the actual rover, Curiosity, on a long tether like a fishing line and just lower it all the way down and set it gently on the ground. Uh And this was a obviously ridiculous idea nobody had ever tried anything like this um but then they went over all of the other ideas they had and all the other ones were worse like they all had problems and this one seemed although it was ridiculous like it had the fewest problems it might be it just might work and they tried it and it did so like sometimes i i like to you know not really worry about it. is this a ridiculous answer or a not ridiculous answer i just want to say would this work or not
1: and if not, why? And, and uh... And sometimes, like, and, real science comes... Like, I, I learned a lot from this book. Like, for example, right towards the beginning, you're talking about how to fill a swimming pool, uh, how to, in the how to throw a pool party section. I hadn't realized that the U.S. government tested the effects of nuclear explosions on bottled water.
2: Yes, um, and beer. Uh, right. Water... They, they said commercially packaged beverages, they were mostly soda and beer. Um... And so the, the the what they did is they acquired these beverages from local uh, retailers in commercial packaging and then put them under a nuclear test site and detonated <laughs> nuclear weapons over them. Um, and they even they were very careful because they wanted to see how well these weapons would how well the uh, the drinks would survive the uh, a nuclear attack. And they wanted to know would the water you know would the drinks still be uh, capable of providing hydration or would they be unsafe for some reason. Um, but so they, they, and they set out the bottles, they carefully put them at different angles and everything. Um, part of me does wonder when I read the part about, you know, they acquired them from a local, local retailers. Um, part of me wondered if this entire project wasn't just a cover story that someone developed after they were caught buying drinks (laughs) on their like government account.
1: Um, but yeah, yeah, we're also testing the effect on, uh, Pringles and, uh, bouncy castles. So (laughs) yes,
2: yeah um exactly and and, but 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 and i i was i was pretty young during the cold war but it seems like it was a weird time they did a lot of really (laughs) unusual science projects uh uh um people just had these wacky ideas and they explored them and you can find and i and i love because you can just find these uh these unclassified government reports on some project and it'll be like 200 pages on on setting off nuclear weapons over beer bottles you know (laughs) And so I just I just love reading through these things and finding all the weird stuff they did.
0: Yeah. Did some of these ideas and chapters come about because you already knew about the interesting angle such as such as the one you just mentioned and then you sort of retrofitted it or did it all come from actual problems? You were like, I want to find a new way to solve this. Let's get as absurd as possible and then see where the science takes me.
2: Um, a little of both. Uh, the I would say more. You know, I'll start with a basic problem and then see where it takes me. And maybe it takes me past some research I already you know had read about or something interesting I I was wanted to look into more. Um, there were cases though where I just read a paper that was really cool and then was like, okay, well, how how can how can this be useful? You know, how can I apply this around the home or whatever. Um, uh, one of my favorite papers that I came across when I was reading about uh measuring infrasound was a paper by uh, some uh, seismologists in Barcelona uh, who had a lab and you know they had uh, uh, earthquake measuring equipment that measured the the shaking of the ground um, and a couple of a little ways down the uh down the street uh, like half a mile away or something, Bruce Springsteen played a concert. And this was in, I think, 2016. Mm-hmm. And they noticed that on their seismographic instruments, they could, they could pick out vibrations at certain frequencies that were caused by people dancing to the Bruce Springsteen songs. Um, and their equipment could pick out what frequency the, uh, these pulses were coming at. And from that, they could actually match it up with the set list and figure out when he was playing "Born to Run" versus the "Road," um, and and so they they published this chart uh, of of their seismographic trace, and then they uh, under it they had like a label showing here's here was which song corresponded, and there were the gaps in between where no one dances, and then there were a couple songs where the vibrations were really weak, which I guess were like the less dancey songs,
0: the ballads <laughs> and things, yeah
2: so I did a little, a little chart that was basically just showing their cool research, you know, there was, uh, uh, but it was how to listen to music, but it's like if you can't get tickets to the concert, just you can just head to your local uh, uh, seismologist and, uh, and ask to hook up to their equipment. And
1: <laughs> it, it probably won't be quite as good, but at least you won't be... Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, quite yeah. as good as relative. There's probably right. people who'd much rather look at a seismograph than listen to Springsteen. I'd say they're yeah. a sub, they're a minority of the population, but they exist. They'd probably listen to our podcast.
0: <laughs> That's a fair. Few. And read XKCD. Yeah, yeah. That was your chapter How to Play the Piano, in which you also showed how wide the keyboard would have to be in order to encompass uh, music for dogs and bats and elephants, like infrasound all the way up to like things in the forty thousand hertz range and uh how how big was the final keyboard in the end of that chapter i'm looking at oh it it's
2: it's uh somewhere around 250 keys uh and that was to cover really the widest piano that kind of made physical sense mm-hmm. um because someone asked uh this and this is one of the few questions in there that was based off of something someone uh wrote into me and i so i mentioned them at the start uh because they were asking how could you how, what would we like to play a piano like that um so the idea is that our piano 88 keys runs from, you know, the standard piano runs from very low to very high notes, but humans can hear uh uh higher and lower notes than a piano can produce. The very lowest ones are pretty close to the lowest end of our of our hearing, but but you can go lower. And so you could if you wanted to make every sound a person can hear, you'd need to a- add, you know, a few dozen keys on either side. But in theory you could make a piano that produced higher, even higher and even lower sounds. Um, and, and you run into some interesting physics problems when you try to make a piano that produces really high notes, um, you vibrating strings, uh, uh, don't work very well for really high pitched notes, the kind that are used in pianos because, and I didn't, I didn't know this until I was reading about this because i I know very little about pianos and many of the topics that I wrote about here. Um, I, you know, uh, I didn't know the reason pianos will have multiple strings for high notes is because those notes aren't as loud. Um, the string is shorter. So it's moving less air when it vibrates Mm -hmm. and because it's shorter, the vibrations are are smaller. And so overall, so you need to have two or even three strings that get hit by the hammer just to produce a note that's comparable in loudness to the lower notes. And if you tried to go higher, you would quickly, uh, run out of string. Um, no matter how, how you can't uh, keep producing higher and higher notes using that mechanism. So you would have to switch to uh, uh, something different. And um, and so I talk about some of the technologies for producing very high and very, very low notes. Um, and I got to include uh, uh, another of my favorite tidbits – if you did have a piano that could produce extremely low frequency sounds, these are too low for people to hear too low, even for elephants to hear, um, you know, the, some of the animals that can hear the lowest frequencies, mm-hmm. but there are lower sounds that, and it's not like they separate out into individual pulses. Cause that's always what I thought was, well, if a sound is just, you know, oscillation, then a really low sound in, instead of being a buzz, will just be like, you know, click, click, click or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, um, but really low sounds, it's more like a, a pressure wave, like the pressure gets higher and the pressure gets lower, but there's no high frequency component. There's no click. There's nothing to hear. Right. You can just right. detect it using an instrument. And the and so there are, the way to detect these is with these, uh, uh, there are these arrays that measure the pressure in the air and they can detect when a pressure wave goes over. Um, they're mostly used for things like monitoring for nuclear weapons tests. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, they'll print out a trace, a, a graph showing, you know, the signals they've received and what frequency they are. And so I included a piece of music in the book uh, composed with the help of a, a, a fellow named Greg, Greg Leppard, who helped me get the notation right. But it, um, uh, it is a piece of piano music, which is a bunch of octaves below the regular staff, uh, the regular musical staff. And if you played, a, played it on a piano, you wouldn't be able to hear it. And it would take about two hours to play. Um, but if there's anyone nearby who's monitoring, uh, looking for nuclear weapons explosions, this piece of music will print out a uh, stick figure on their seismograph.
0: Would it have to be like their- logarithmically laid out or is it, is it just like a straightforward? Uh, I was um, trying to look at that, look at the actual notation and see if I could sort of see a stick figure in the... Yes.
2: What you can do, I could have obfuscated it more. Um, you know, I, I I played with a few different ways of representing it, and we could have like, you know, I could have I could have uh, had more chords that made it unclear which way the the notes were moving or whatever until you really graphed it out. But um, but if as it is, if you look at the paper edge on, turn it sideways, and uh, then t- you know tilt it away from you. Oh yeah, <laughs> you can see the stick figure broken into two pieces. Yes, uh, you can. Yeah. Yeah, and that um that'll draw out a nice kind of pixelated uh uh stick figure. And and what's cool is this is this is actually one of the few things in the book you could le- you could really do this. Um there's a way to produce you know subwoofers can go down to a certain frequency, but but then they have to get very large and very high power drawing, but to produce infrasound there's a different kind of uh of piece of equipment called a rotary woofer which is basically a fan with pivoting blades where the fan it's like the blades pivot to blow air forward and then they pivot to be flat and then they pivot to blow air
1: backwards oh which literally creates a pressure wave
2: yes it literally creates a pressure wave and those waves can travel really far and so if you set up one or you know multiple of those you can produce sounds arbitrarily low frequency um although you may need more of them, you know, to make the wave coherent and make it travel some distance. And so you could, and they're relatively inexpensive because, you know, it's a, it's a fan with, with some pivots on it that like, they're not common because people don't really want to do this most of the time, <laughs> but, um, it, this would be relatively easy to pull off. And so I wonder if, if, uh, someone out there is gonna, is gonna hook up a piano to a rotary woofer and then, uh, I feel you know, like... it, you'd probably need a fairly large uh, array, but, but it would be cool if it then showed up on some monitoring station and someone had to figure out what the heck
1: is this. I feel like if anyone's fan base is likely to try this out, it's yours.
2: (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, there are are a lot of people. I am surprised by how many uh, uh, um, people who read my books have access to all kinds (laughs) of... uh, very cool equipment when i did my first what if article someone wrote in was like hey i work at the so-and-so high energy physics laboratory and we loved your article about the relativistic baseball um i work at this uh i work on particle simulation so we actually ran your experiment your uh, hypothetical uh here <laughs> and we have some you know corrections and additional details uh here's how... and um i did once get a letter from someone who was like hey i love your comics i read them all the time at work and I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Thank you." So, so, what do you, where do you work, or something? And and he wrote back that he was someone who inspected missiles. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna ban your entire facility from. You should be doing your work." Yeah,
0: yeah there's no time for this. <laughs>
2: and nor, normally, I'm I'm cool with that, but uh, 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 but oh man, please, please do do keep an eye if you're inspecting something for safety please don't read my comics on the job
1: i i do love that that that's the what if book by the way which is i loved that was a few years ago that was where you took a whole lot of questions from various members of the public about what would happen if all sorts of absurd scenarios like if the sun disappeared and so on Mm Hmm. Um, yeah yeah a lot of fun so that that was largely inspired by the public what this one you say was mostly self-generated but there were some like the piano one that members of the public or various people suggested or
2: yeah yeah nudged. and there were a few where, where i had um there was at least one where i had a friend who had ants in his house uh and he had been trying to get rid of them in all these different ways and then he finally asked me listen how much would it cost me to try to build a moat of lava surrounding my house would that keep them out <laughs> um i i think that the cost was surprisingly in uh in reach for a uh if there are any kind of billionaire wannabe supervillains out there like it, it would it's 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 out of reach for you know normal people but it's like it's like uh you know came up with like a few tens of thousands of dollars a day that's a lot but like that's not a lot for someone like you it's know, possible yeah like it's 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 uh so so you really could have a lava moat which is pretty cool um i i did um that was one thing you know that i did uh uh research avenue that i was really curious about and ultimately uh, uh didn't get to pursue was i was going to call the local um, zoning boards and uh, <laughs> try to find out if i built a lava moat in my hou- around my house i am certain that i would get in trouble with someone but I'm not sure who. Right. And, and I think that it's the kind of thing where the, really the best way to find out is to try it and see. Um, so I wanted to call around, but I don't know. Should I call the, ask the fire department? Should I ask the zoning board? Should I just call City Hall? Should yeah, I really be taken away it, from their work? I mean, a um, lava,
1: lava isn't itself fire, but it does make fire happen very near it.
2: Yeah, one of my friends suggested I should look at the regulations around industrial facilities. But, like, I'm not, I'm not up to any industry. I'm just uh, yeah. enjoying the geothermal, uh, the, enjoying the, the scenery, which contains very, very natural molten rocks. Rock is sometimes molten, you know. <laughs> right, It's just, just one of the ways rocks is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, some people have, like, nice marble.
1: I have some nice uh, <laughs> uh, liquid rock. You probably need to sign up somewhere that says warning lava just in case anyone falls in, you're covered. Yes. Well, my favorite um, piece of feedback I got from an expert was I I
2: met um, uh, uh, someone who uh uh mentioned that she was a volcanologist um, it was uh, uh her name was jess phoenix she's um
1: oh she ran uh, for and, office as well didn't she yeah,
2: she, ran, okay. she ran for Congress and I ran into her and and I talked a, you know a, a little bit about politics but mostly I was like wait a minute so you're a volcanologist I want to ask you about lava motes <laughs> um and because I had a calculation in there that said that um, someone could uh, 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 you know if if you got near a lava moat, you'd have heat from this distance. You could jump over it this way. And I got to run all those by her and get her to, to, um, you know, to, to answer for me, like, which parts would really work? What problems would I run into? And, and she had all kinds of uh, cool stuff to share about, about what it's like dealing with lava in real life, including the, um, the, the, the stink. She said a lot, you know, not all lava smells, but a lot of it has a high sulfur content. And so it smells like uh, rotten eggs or uh, uh, the smell they put in natural gas
1: all uh, right yeah that's something to be aware of before you see so you that's need right. some air fresheners as well if you're gonna yeah have yeah
2: well that's why that's that's why um um you know it might give off other toxic substances too and also you know you might have stuff falling into it and vaporizing and you know it's like when you leave a pan on the stove right whatever coming off they're probably not great for you so yeah you definitely ventilation is key for a lava moat
1: that's the burden of being a billionaire yeah keep that in mind listeners <laughs> it's, uh... before you build your moat
2: yeah, well... so if you build a lava moat definitely
1: some safety signs and uh and you want to make sure you got ventilation sorted out uh, before we go, because I know we don't have you for that much longer, what, what was the most surprising bit of science that you unearthed, or the thing that surprised you the most when you were writing the book? Um, or delighted I, you the most, maybe?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I think, so this was a really small thing, but I was really surprised. Uh, I was reading, I was doing a chapter on, on how to mail a package from space. That was about if you if you just throw something out of the window of the space station. Like say you, you want to send a package down to Earth, but NASA is sick of handling your you know shopping right. returns or whatever. Um, can you just throw it out the window? Uh, and and almost anything you throw out the window of the space station will pretty quickly, within you know days to months, uh, descend and burn up in the atmosphere. But I was shocked to learn that if you toss a um, if you throw something that's really lightweight and has a high surface area, it slows down higher up in the atmosphere where there's less heat transfer, um, where the air is thinner, and so it will it will slow do a lot of its slowing down uh, without being able to absorb very much heat, and and as a result, it's possible for things that are shaped roughly like a piece of paper that are like the thickness of a piece of paper and, and have the right curve to them. To enter the atmosphere without ever getting uh, uh, hot, really all that hot, without ever getting hot enough to burn, and so you normally, if you want to send something back from space, you have to build this big heat shield on it that'll uh, ablate away and take away that heat energy, and that's the most efficient way normally to to get yourself down into the atmosphere is is absorb the heat in a heat shield and then let that disintegrate. But if you want to mail just a single letter.
1: Mm-hmm
2: potentially just put it in a manila envelope like seal it up write the address on it and just chuck it out the
1: window (laughs) and hope it lands on the land mass rather than in the middle of the ocean
2: you've only got like a 30 percent chance of getting it on land at all so for starters your odds aren't great but but um that's the the military totally uh when they were when they were returning spy satellite capsules the ones that used film cameras they just had to write a note on it being like if you find this please take it to the u.s embassy
1: um (laughs) Right, you said in the book and, that, and that at ha- first they went like the original thing said warning, do not touch, spy stuff, and then eventually they had to change it to like, oh, reward if you handed, if you find this.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they put like top secret, classified, and, <laughs> and, and like you know, U.S. property of U.S. government, and, and that made people open them immediately. Yeah. But um, <laughs> especially if it lands in some country that's not wild about the U.S. government. But if you put on it like, hey, ten thousand dollars if you drop this off unopened at an embassy, then uh, then people people are more like, oh, okay, that seems. <laughs> i'll I'll avoid getting in trouble and maybe get ten thousand dollars uh so if you're gonna if you're gonna um drop a message try to make it look like something give give the people a reason to want to deliver it maybe uh you could just like clip some money to the outside and be like here honor system if you can drop this in the mail
1: yeah more of this where that came from
2: yeah i mean on the other hand uh if if it can't be delivered uh mailing it to Earth from the space station is pretty straight, uh, is, you know, surprisingly easy.
1: Returning that letter to sender takes a bit more work. Right. right. Yeah, well, you can't just sort of drop it out of the window on Earth and hope it floats back up. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: so you, you will finally then need to, need to get over your, uh, whatever tiff you're having with NASA. But hopefully <laughs> by that point you've, uh, you've sorted things out or else you're going to still be stuck on that space station.
0: And you worked for them briefly out of college, didn't you?
2: yeah i did um i worked i did a first a summer internship there where I worked on some three d uh uh vision stuff and then at uh and then I got a job as a uh engineer you know as a working in a robotics lab and so I did robotic navigation
1: and, awesome. and now you 're slowing their work by distracting them by running your simulations instead of doing their yes. work
2: yes <laughs> um but you know I try to make up for it by talking about all the cool stuff they
1: do and the you, the, you, re- you really do like i I think some you know. of the stuff you've done uh i still think one of the one of my favorite things that you've ever done because it i've never seen it put like this and so clear was the uh global climate change uh it was one of your xkcd cartoons the really long one that showed the change in global temperatures over the year and i'd never yeah or over the centuries and millennia and i'd never yeah. realized quite how you know when people go oh yeah you know the the temperature ebbs and flows over the time just listeners i'd advise you check it out we'll put a link to it in the show yeah, notes I, but it it's just this long long almost vertical line that just at the very end banks incredibly hard to the right
2: yeah i think that that might be the single most viewed thing i've ever put on the internet um and i did spend a lot of time on that trying to get the you know make sure i got all the science right get all the stuff right um and talk to a lot of experts but um the the big yeah the big the big thing i wanted to get across is like we've reconstructed temperature history and we know that the climate has changed before you know we know that temperatures have changed before and you hear people say that um, as a response to like here's why climate scientists are wrong uh, you know it, it, that we shouldn't worry that much it's natural for the climate to change but the reason we know the climate has changed before is because climate scientists have reconstructed it you know and looked at it yeah. Yeah. and those changes that we know about are very different from the ones that happen now. So it's because we know how the climate has changed. We know that the climate has changed before, and that's a reason to be more alarmed, not less alarmed, because those changes before were very dramatic, and the ones we know about were much slower than what's happening right now.
1: Right. They, so- they are noticeable, but over the course of many, many thousands of years, rather than just this sudden, rapid yeah. acceleration in the... And,
2: and- yeah yeah and and i used you know dotted lines and i had some notes about like here's here's the limits of this data here's what we know about um there may have been short rapid changes in temperature here and there um and we and we can put some bounds on how big those could have been we're pretty sure there was nothing like what's happening right now in the you know the last twenty thirty thousand years um but we what we um so you know we can't say that that this has never happened in Earth's history. Probably it has happened. Uh, you know, right after like giant volcanic eruptions or meteor impacts or stuff like that. But like um, we know that the changes we know about when people say the climate has changed before, those are uh, very different from what's happening now, and
1: should make us more alarmed and not uh, less. Right. Uh. Well, this this new book. Uh. I loved it. It was it's great. It's out today as well. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, it's in in bookstores anywhere, everywhere. Uh, I don't. People always say like wherever books are sold, like <laughs>
2: yeah, which <laughs> anywhere isn't,
1: isn't technically current, true. There's definitely like some purposes. places books are sold where you can't find this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> um, but uh, but but no, it's but, it's
2: uh, it's all it's all over the place. You can check it out. It's. I'm really proud of it. I had a lot of fun putting it together. It's um,
1: it's really great. Well, like like all of your work, it's full of it kind of mixes humor with su- surprising stuff with deep research and genuine science and it's great
0: the book again is how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems thank you so much randall monroe we really appreciate it
2: hey thank you i really appreciate it it was great talking to you lots of fun you too take care okay
1: so that was randall monroe i i hope you enjoyed that we very much did we've been fans of his work for quite some time as i'm sure many of you are and uh, it was very kind of him to join us by Skype just now. That we will put a link to buy the book in the show notes uh, through your purchaser of choice. We uh, we no longer have a connection, a hook up, a kickback with the large internet <laughs> evil
0: named for <laughs> area of the world that's on fire right now. Yes, yeah.
1: So uh, buy it from whoever you choose, whoever you so desire. Maybe your local bookstore, maybe a kindly person in the street. Whoever sure. you like.
0: But yeah, do get it. It's very fun and um it's got
1: pictures. It sure does. <laughs> it sure has pictures that he many of which he drew himself.
0: Yep, check it out. That's how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems. Get yourself a copy and
1: We'll be back next week with a regular episode covering some of the stories that you sent in and with a guest, probably in studio, in the living room. You can send us any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover at ProbablyScience at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at ProbablyScience, Facebook slash ProbablyScience. You can find us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. And ProbablyScience.com is where all of the stories we cover are linked, uh, things we discuss are in the show notes, and you can also find the donation buttons, the PayPal and Patreon links. Thank you very much to the people who have used those.
0: Indeed, I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, back with a regular episode but until then thank you randall monroe for joining us and thank you listeners for uh, hopefully enjoying it bye-bye